there is a growing recognition that native people, um, indigenous land practices are crucial and necessary to protecting those places. So fine, like we've been saying that forever, like in the US and everywhere else. And so um, finally, there's a, a beginning recognition of that in a way that sort of signals to me a kind of a kind of a growing urgency about this. Welcome back to Acclimated. Thanks as usual for your patience in between episodes as I put all this stuff together. I'm excited to be able to welcome today's guest, scholar Dina Gillia Whitaker. Okay, why Pisnaxilk East Quest Dina Gillia Whitaker? And I'm coming to you from the ancestral unceded territory of the Ahashiman Nation in what's currently called Orange County in Southern California. Um, I'm a descendant of the Colville Confederated Tribes in Washington State, the Sinaixt Band, and I'm, my uh, family relations are, uh, I'm related, well, I'm the daughter of Vince Gilio and Rose Marie Burnett, who is the daughter of Mabel Desitel, who was the daughter of um, Ida O'Brien and um, Gilbert Desitel, so I'm related through um, these old families in, uh, in, on the reservation in in Washington state. And I, I introduce myself that way um, more and more as a way to uh, establish my, my kinship with that community as somebody who's, who's legitimately native. I'm not somebody who claims it based on some, you know, distant ancestor or something like that. I, you know, this is how we establish our accountability to our communities. I'm a lecturer of American Indian Studies at Cal State San Marcos in San Diego County. And I'm an independent consultant um, that works in a wide array of contexts around policy planning and education. With Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Julia Whitaker co-wrote All the Real Indians Died Off and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans which was released in 2016. And last year, her most recent book was published. It's called As Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice, From Colonization to Standing Rock. I think As Long as Grass Grows is just really valuable in how it kind of breaks open and examines the term environmental justice to understand both its limitations and its real potential. The book looks at the ways that the term is often deployed as a kind of catch-all for a huge variety of different environmental injustices that communities experience. When used in this way, it can actually obscure more than it clarifies. It relegates all of these experiences to the same thing and can even imply that they all have similar resolutions. Julia Whitaker addresses this shortcoming by exploring the history of indigenous resistance to colonization from its beginnings to today, and in the process highlights how colonization is, among other things, a process of ecological devastation. 
Throughout the work, she proposes an indigenous reconceptualization of environmental justice. As she states in its opening, her book asks, quote, what does environmental justice look like when indigenous peoples are at the center? I read As Long as Grass Grows last year and then was actually lucky enough to speak with Jillia Whitaker for a piece I was working on about the book last fall. In the years since, I often felt like I was hearing the term environmental justice pop up more and more frequently, probably most often during the uh, U.S. presidential campaign by candidates in the Democratic primary, by organizations affiliated with the party, and then in the media discourse surrounding all of that. And so I was interested in hearing about these developments and whether or not the character of the conversations around environmental justice had changed at all in recent years. Jillia Whitaker notes that she has seen a major increase in attention to the idea of environmental justice in 2020 and has had an extremely busy schedule keeping up with all of it. There's been, you know, a, a whole kind of new, uh, you know, emergence of recognition and literature and scholarship and all that stuff about indigenous, the, the importance of indigenous people in relation to, you know, biodiversity and, you know, how biodiversity and cultural diversity go hand in hand. And there's a growing recognition that native people, um, indigenous land practices are crucial and necessary to protecting those places. So fine, like we've been saying that forever, like in the U.S. and everywhere else. And so um, finally, there's a a beginning recognition of that in a way that sort of signals to me a kind of a kind of a growing urgency about this um, about the the kind of growing recognition about how indigenous knowledge and land management practices and all this you know like going beyond the the you know indigenous wisdom and folklore and all that kind of warm, fuzzy, uh, you know, hippy dippy new age stuff, like finally getting into it. Oh, wow. Native people really did effectively manage land, their landscapes in ways that were uh, intelligent and um, sustainable. So there's this, this growing recognition of that. And um, so I'm seeing that in all the kinds of spaces I'm being invited into. And I'm hearing the same thing from colleagues of mine who do similar work. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that this will, you know, translate into, you know, meaningful policy and law and, you know, decision making and inclusion and all that kind of stuff, because that's really what we're what we're saying needs to happen, you know, to not be an afterthought if we're ever if we're even thought of at all. She thinks that it's still too early to say that there's been serious structural change yet, and there are reasons to be skeptical of where things will go from here. But she also believes that there are windows of opportunity for real change opening up right now thanks to the work of activist movements especially. And those are topics we'll get to in a bit. But to understand the current situation means first understanding what environmental injustice is, which means going back centuries to the founding of the U.S. She states that her book, quote, starts from the assumption that colonization was not just a process of invasion and eventual domination of indigenous populations by European settlers, but also that the eliminatory impulse and structure it created in actuality began as an environmental injustice. She ties this to the U.S. government's dispossession of native lands, so sovereignty is a crucial issue for understanding and addressing environmental justice. Overall, she says, quote, a differentiated environmental justice framework 
we could call this an indigenized environmental justice, must acknowledge the political existence of Native nations and be capable of explicitly respecting principles of indigenous nationhood and self-determination. Sovereignty is, is incredibly important to environmental justice for a number of reasons. And I would say that it's, it really is because, as I wrote about in the book, environmental justice for Native people um, goes far beyond the concept of environmental racism, although it includes it. Um, that with race being sort of like the analytic framework that we talk about it within, but for native people, it's a very inappropriate analytic uh, analytic category to uh, to apply, you know, to to put them in like to, the, a box, like to put them in that box. It's not appropriate because native people um, have, although they've you know, we have been racialized, you know, for centuries now, um, ultimately really what we are is nations. And so as nations pre-existing, pre-constitutional, meaning we far predate the United States as nations, as nations that had uh, diplomatic relationships with each other um, for millennia. Um, and that's how we come into our relationship with the United States and, and basically how uh, this is also what structures our re relationship with the United States today um, is the, the recognition of uh, in the inherent sovereignty that we entered into that relationship today, even though the relationship is basically a, a hegemonic relationship. It, it is a relationship that um, the federal government has not honored, you know, treaty violations over and over and over again as a matter of regularity. But also um, there's still the, just the, the fact of the treaties themselves are the inherent recognition of that mutual sovereignty. And so that really is, even though it's a diminished kind of sovereignty, you know, that we did not consent to, right? Hence the hegemony. Um, it's still, um, you know, part of the legal framework that constructs that relationship. And so um, there's, so the vir by virtue of the fact that we are nations with political relationships to the state, um, that has to be taken into consideration in any kind of environmental justice discourse, law and policy. Um, and if you look at it, all definitions of environmental justice, there are explicit um, references, uh, you know, explicit reference to the idea that, you know, equity and, uh, and fairness shall not, you know, consider national origin at all. And that is, I mean, the contradictions there are obvious. So, um, so that's something that really needs to change for Native people. Um, in order to, you know, have these these conversations about what environmental justice really means and how it can be effective for Native people. In her book, Julia Whitaker details some of the ways that the U.S. government has denied Indigenous sovereignty and ignored its own treaty obligations, often in the pursuit of economic expansion. Major infrastructure initiatives have often displaced Indigenous communities and led to environmental devastation. 
This was the case, for example, with the dam building projects of the Public Works Administration, which is part of the New Deal. Along with physical displacement, Julia Whitaker points out that, quote, waters were diverted, interrupting farming practices, ancient food sources were eliminated, tribal self-determination was compromised with dams built on treaty lands, entire ecosystems were altered, interrupting cultural practices and dividing families, trauma inflicted by the disruptions contributed to failing health conditions in tribal communities. The development of the railroads during the 19th century provides another example, as Julia Whitaker says that the expansion of the railroads could be considered, quote, the death knell to an independent indigenous existence. Now, discussions around U.S. government responses to climate change often focus on the crisis as an opportunity for economic revival, a recommitment to the kinds of major infrastructure projects that shaped the mid-20th century. And public transportation is uh, obviously a huge area of potential investment. This parallel is drawn most clearly, of course, in the messaging of the Green New Deal. But given all this history, I wondered if there was any tension at all between these economic proposals and their stated commitment to environmental justice. How can sovereignty be recognized in these proposals, given the long record of environmental injustice that has accompanied the economic efforts of the U.S.? According to Julia Whitaker, a starting point for this is identifying the distinction between consultation and consent. You know, ultimately, like I'm always saying and writing about is that that anything that involves any kind of development, you know, infrastructure, any kind of development anywhere should be done, should be done with the consent of native communities. There's a big difference between consent and consultation. Um, and the way that I wrote about it in the book, this is a huge tension that has yet to be really addressed. Uh, federal law, you know, that which subjugates us to the, you know, federal, you know, to, to federal Indian law and to, um, you know, its statutes and rules and regulations and all of that, it mandates fair and meaningful consultation, but there's a really broad understanding about what consultation actually means. And, and consultation can be meant, mean anything from a letter gets sent to a tribal government of some project, you know, proposed project to, you know, meeting with people, meeting with, with tribal governments, um, but, but then they really have no, no ability to contest a project or they might, they might contest it, but there, it, it would effectively be meaningless. That's exactly what happened in the case of Standing Rock with, um, with the Dakota Access Pipeline. The, the tribal government made its, its opinions known early on that they absolutely opposed any kind of pipeline project running through their treaty lands and you know close to their reservation borders. Um, but it didn't matter because they had no veto power. So. Um, and on the other hand, you know, the United States endorsed the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People uh, in 2010 under the Obama administration and was the last country in the UN General Assembly to do so. But in the UN, in the, the declaration, one of the most important rights that it enshrines is the right to free prior and informed consent to um, those kinds of 
you know, radical development projects in their ancestral territories. The U.S. in theory agreed to that by endorsing the, the declaration. And yet it doesn't, you know, it doesn't um, enact it at all. Even when Obama stepped in, like going back to the Standing Rock example, President Obama, you know, on December 4th, 2016, at the, in the 11th hour, you know, finally stepped in and denied the final permits for the, the pipeline crossing underneath Lake Oahe. Um, you know, I mean, that was nice, but it was too little too late. And, um, and nowhere did he even refer to, you know, we agreed to provide tribal governments with the ability to uh, consent. Like that was never ever brought up. So there's this like, you know, major hypocrisy in all of this. And, um, and so this is really something that's, imp that's important. Like the, you know, the federal government and all levels of government need to take it seriously that the United States has endorsed this. They have embraced on, at least on paper, the idea of consent, that tribes need to consent to whatever projects happen that involve them and, and take it seriously. Um, and so, I mean, it's not, it's not that hard. It's not, I mean, it's not that, you know, complicated to, to think about this stuff. And so, um, you know, when we're talking about something like the, the Green New Deal, for example, right? The Green New Deal, it was, you know, as it was initially drafted, you know, it had some good things about uh, incorporating indigenous peoples into that. It didn't go far enough. So I, you know, wrote a piece for High Country Today about how it could, and I, I'm not the only one. There were others who, uh, like Indigenous Environmental Network and some other people who talked about, you know, how the Green New Deal, should it ever actually materialize, how it can be uh, it can be responsive to native nations. Um, but this would be one of the ways that it can do that to, to be responsive is to, you know, reinforce its commitment to, um, to free prior and informed consent with tribal nations. But as Julia Whitaker discusses, the U.S. has often disregarded its commitment to recognizing sovereignty in negotiations and developments regarding global warming. For one example, she points to the Kyoto Protocol, which was kind of the first major attempt uh, back in the mid-1990s to create a, uh, a treaty globally that mandated greenhouse gas emissions reductions uh, that would actually be legally binding for all the participating parties. It, uh, well, if, if you're aware at all of the uh, trends in emissions since uh, the late 90s, you may be able to guess at how successful the Kyoto Protocol was, which is, I actually think this is a really important story, uh, and I'm hoping to get into it more uh, on some episodes next year. But Julia Whitaker notes that the drafting process of the protocol routinely ignored indigenous sovereignty. I mean, this is about how, uh, you know, all levels of the American socio-political like structure erases indigenous people. I mean, it, it's just the way this country was founded. And so, and, and it's just replicated over and over and over again. And, and it's so, you know, as, as scholars and activists, you know, what we're always constantly screaming and yelling about is like, hey, 
you know, we're over here, we are the original people, we still have land issues, we have treaty rights, we have trust lands, we have, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, interest in, in everything that happens on this land, and we have a right to know about and to be included in the decision making process. I mean, this has been going on for hundreds of years. So, um, so it's no surprise. The same thing was true, uh, you know, with with the Kyoto Protocol, like in the days when the Kyoto Protocol was um, was alive, there were there was absolutely no effort to to bring tribal governments, tribal governments as the third sovereign in the in the U.S. political system, no effort whatsoever. They were completely uh, evaded. Um, in the same way that you know indigenous peoples. Uh, globally were evaded and one of the reasons why the Kyoto Protocol was such a you know colossal failure. As mentioned earlier though, the conversations around environmental justice have shifted since then and public awareness of the concept has increased in the past couple of years in particular. Does this mean things are truly headed in a different direction? Julia Whitaker thinks it's, it's maybe too early to make a definitive call on that at the moment. Within the federal government, there is the potential to, at the very least, start working to stop the worst impacts of the Trump administration's nightmarish management of environmental affairs. Well, we'll see. I mean, I, you know, I can't say that I'm aware of anything that's actually any kind of concrete action that's been taken yet. Right. I mean, aside from kind of these, this topic being a growing conversation in certain spaces, um, you know, but th that meaning, you know, including indigenous, you know, the curiosity of indigenous perspectives and, and indigenous knowledge, TEK, and all of that stuff. Um, you know, I, I can't say that I know of any solid concrete action that's been taken. And I also do think, too, that the, the EPA um, needs to, there need to be Native people in the EPA. I mean, now we can, you know, with the Biden administration, we'll see the, the regeneration of the EPA as we know the EPA has basically been gutted under the Trump administration and forget about talking about justice. I mean, they basically, you know, all but dismantled the environmental justice pro uh, program within the EPA. So thank God we're, you know, moving out of that, the, you know, the, the dark ages of the Trump administration and back into, you know, some, you know, not that it was all like hearts and flowers and roses before, before, but at least we can go back to the the, the bad normal that was before rather than like the catastrophic normal <laughs> the Trump administration brought, you know, so, um, and hopefully you'll rise above that, the, the, the bad normal from before. But Julia Whitaker sees maybe the most promise in the ways environmental justice initiatives have converged with ongoing activism and organizing efforts. I think, you know, like we talked about earlier about, you know, the language for instance, of environmental justice. And, you know, environmental justice always, always implies racial justice, right? It, it, it just does. That's, that's the whole point of it. And so there's the, so we have this new language kind of bleeding into our public discourse 
and you know and i think it goes it really goes parallel to what we've been seeing this year with the ethnic rights movement in the us with the black lives matter movement you know now we're we're that conversation is front and center ears are somewhat open and um, we're having those conversations you know i mean think about uh, you're probably familiar with the land back movement, right? This is a big deal. You know, the, the Indian Collective and their campaign, uh, you know, hashtag land back. Indian Collective is, has got some major funding behind them. And, you know, how, how they put that funding to work in this campaign remains to be seen, but, but it's certainly high profile and it's uh, not going to it's not going to be a flash in the pan. Uh, so there, things are things are afoot. There's some really interesting changes happening, and hopefully, we'll see that translate into policy and law. Um, that remains to be seen, though. These efforts can face significant obstacles because of what Julia Whitaker calls the fickleness of the political institutions of the United States. However, different presidential administrations, different judges, different congresses. All of them can have drastically different policy strategies and understandings of federal law. Julia Whitaker says that this has serious implications for political strategizing and that indigenous resistance has a long-term perspective that reflects this reality. The Trump administration is a perfect example of that. I mean, as soon as Trump got in, you know, what happens? I mean, his first day in office, he, he you know, <laughs> restarts the Dakota Access Pipeline. He grants the permits and like, you know, six months later, oil is flowing. Um, and you know, it's, so it's constant, it's a constant back and forth for us. It's like, you know, like two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back, you know, but we're playing the long game here and, you know, we have to look at it in much larger chunks of time. And if, and, and if you do that, you know, it's probably fair to say that, you know, we at least are, are in a, uh, in terms of federal policy and how they work with tribal nations and what their approach is, you know, we are still in a period of what's called self-determination. So the federal government in 1975 overturned their previous policy of termination you know, which was literally about terminating their relationship, their treaty-based obligations to us. Um, and, and that's really what sparked the entire Red Power Movement in the 60s and 70s. So, you know, the Alcatraz Island occupation, the, the, the American Indian Movement, um, you know, and all the things that happened in the early 70s with all that, the, you know, direct action campaigns, you know, wounded, the wounded knee occupation or, you know, um, standoff, all that stuff that happened in those periods all happened because of these, you know, very you know, draconian federal policies. And so, so all of that activism led to substantial change in federal policy. So it works like that kind of activism works. And we've had that policy ever since, but but it's always fragile. Like, you know, we, we have the long perspective of 500 years of this, these relationships with Europeans and, and settlers. So, oh, good, we have self-determination now. Yay, we can rest. Like, no, it's always, 
it's always tenuous and um, we can never expect that it's always going to be granted. The Supreme Court is another complicating factor, one that can't be depended on. Jillia Whitaker notes that there have been some surprisingly good decisions over the years. She points to the uh, recent McGirt v. Oklahoma ruling as one. But there are many cases that have had devastating consequences for tribes in the U.S. You know, there have been a couple of other decisions that have been, you know, like, the, you know, the McGirt decision was, wow, that was a big surprise of the, the Oklahoma decision where they, you know, ruled that, yes, indeed, you know, Congress did not disestablish <laughs> the, the reservations in Oklahoma, you know, or jurisdiction of the five tribes and, and the Creeks in particular. But like, you can't, it's all, it's a crapshoot. It's all a crapshoot when it comes to the Supreme Court. And now we have Amy Coney Barrett. The Supreme Court can cause all kinds of damage and has caused all kinds of damage. Really, so much damage has been created over the last 150 years because of the Supreme Court. So, uh, you know, even if we get, uh, you know, a, a friendly administration and a friendly Congress, right, we still, we're still stuck with this, this very dangerous Supreme Court. Uh, so, you know, that's part of that fickleness of um, the U.S. political system that we are constantly, always, forever subject to. Despite these obstacles, Julia Whitaker believes there are reasons to be encouraged by the developments happening with regard to environmental justice, though not without reservation. Recognizing the potential there also means recognizing the difficulties ahead, including the realities of the climate crisis. And it means recognizing the long and ongoing histories of indigenous resistance and the many generations of sustainable ways of life. You know, I have, I'm cautiously optimistic about, about what the future is bringing. I think, you know, as things get bad in the environment, you know, with climate change and, you know, environmental degradation of all kinds, you know, is, is and this urgency that I noted before, I think this is uh, people are starting to kind of panic a little bit and that's creating openings for for new information for new conversations and um and so I, I find that I find that uh good and you know and at the same time you know that comes it's mixed because that's you know we're clearly facing a future of, you know, some degree of, you know, c catastrophe, but, you know, it's time, it's time, like I always say the you know, native people have been here for millennia. Our tenure on the land for 15,000 years minimum is the very definition of sustainability. You know, you can criticize us all, all you want, right? Like we call us savages, call us like inferior, ignorant, but the fact still remains that we knew how to live on the land in ways without destroying the environment. Not that we didn't make mistakes because that happened, well-documented, but ultimately we learned from those mistakes. And when Europeans came here, the land was so beautiful and so productive that they thought they were walking into an unpeopled landscape. Well, we know different now. We always knew different, but now the, you know, it's well known that that was not the case. So maybe the Indians really knew what they were doing and it's time to listen. That's kind of the sense that I'm getting around it. 
Many thanks to Dina Jillia Whitaker for sharing your time and expertise with the show. As Long as Grass Grows is an excellent read. I very much recommend it. I'll link to some more info on it uh, over on Twitter so you can follow up on that. Other than that, thank you for listening. See you next time.